Hello and welcome to Malopthi Matters, the official podcast for the charity Malopthi.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM and a founder of Myelopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and also a founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters by Myelopathy.org. So welcome to today's podcast episode, where we are returning to a theme of pain. We'll hear from pain consultant Dr. Deepak Ravindran about his recent book, The Pain-Free Mindset. And we also finish with a song written by one of our community members affected by chronic pain, as she turns her mind to something else. So why do you feel this topic is really important to our community, Ewan? As I mentioned before, I think pain is the number one topic in the support group. And it will be great to have an insight on how we can actually control the pain. As you know by the comments within the group, there is no sort of go-to medication. So it will be great to hear his response to this important question. So yes, it's another interview and a topic that I'm really looking forward to. And I think people from the support group and the listeners are looking forward to as well. Well, let's get our guest perspectives then. So today we hear from Dr. Deepak Ravindran, consultant in pain medicine and certified lifestyle medic. He runs the pain services in West Berkshire, UK. He's a lecturer at the University of Reading. He's also the lead for the Berkshire Long COVID service. And we're joined by him today following the publication of his recent book, The Pain-Free Mindset, Seven Steps to Taking Control and Overcoming Chronic Pain. Welcome, Dr. Ravindran. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for inviting me on to this podcast. Pleasure. And I think, you know, we've unearthed that pain is a real burden amongst this group of people. Uh, and so we're delighted to, to, to bring your experience and perspectives to this. And I wanted to start really where your book almost starts with quite a striking quote that the conventional ways don't always work. And what did you mean by that in the context of, of looking after people in pain? Well, it's a very important question. And I think in a way, we in modern medicine and how we've been trained as doctors has always been about saying that when you have pain, it is always an indication of danger and it is always coming from a structure. And that's how most medical schools and most nursing schools and physio schools start their introduction. And that's almost become part of culture and society now that any pain anywhere is dangerous and must be fully investigated. And while that is useful, the convention has been to investigate, to keep investigating, to keep doing more and more expensive forms of imaging, accepting almost as a starting point that the pain is coming from a structure. And if you look hard enough, it will show the result. And that's the conventional way. And what the last 20, 25 years of research that has come through has completely uh, turned it out inside out really such that we are now fairly confident uh, enough to say that pain is a sign of protection and it is an evolutionary adaptation to protect us and that the chances of a structure actually revealing the cause of pain 
is less and less likely. And that means that our conventional ways really do not work anymore when it comes to treating pain. It isn't that simple anymore. And I suppose then perhaps that starts with some of the motivations you had in, in writing this book. Uh, yes, absolutely. I started out as a anesthetist. That is my background medical speciality. After finishing undergraduation in medicine, I did my post-graduation in anesthesia. Pain management is in the UK as well as in India where I did my training is a part of anesthesia and critical care. And so that's my background there. And what drew me to pain management was my understanding that at that time you could find a good nerve block, and that meant I could block pain. And certainly in terms of research, it seemed to be an exciting subspeciality to uh, further specialize in. And in India at that time, I didn't have the access to pain fellowships, which is one of the reasons I came to the UK, you know, got the Royal College exam, got the Faculty of Pain Medicine Fellowship, and I trained in further interventions, got an sort of American fellowship of pain practice and intervention pain practice. And three years into my consultant job in 2013, I was realizing that even though I knew technically all the interventions that I could do, given a good strong heart and a long needle, I potentially could reach any set of nerves in any part of the body. I wasn't getting the pain relief that I thought my nerve block should give. And it's not that I was doing them, you know, without technical competence. And similarly, the drugs that I had at my disposal, I was realizing that it wasn't giving everyone the complete pain relief that I thought it would. And, and that meant that the interventions and medications which I was trained for wasn't doing it. I really had to go back to basics and, and look at why does pain happen? What else could be the cause or treatments for pain which don't respond to interventions and medications? And that was really what started the rabbit hole journey that I went from about 2014 to 2018. And, and when I realized, and I read, and I read some more, I realized actually most of my colleagues in medical practice and most of my colleagues within the pain field and certainly many people within the medical profession just weren't aware of the changes that had happened. If the research was there, the findings were there in all the journals, but it really wasn't being brought together. And, and that's kind of when I realized, well, you know what, I have to start first by probably getting some form of message out to the general public. And that is what has resulted in me thinking about writing this book and bringing it to you. That's really fascinating. So there's a sort of personal journey and changing your own perspectives on pain, as well as the message that you're trying to provide to, to your patients. Absolutely. I mean, I'm now the NHS lead for the complex pain service in a secondary care setting. Um, I helped set up the community pain service in the Berkshire area in 2016. And I was realizing that most of the times, the interventions and medications weren't giving more than two to three months of relief. And where they were working, you know, don't get me wrong, there are definitely places where the right intervention and the right medication changes somebody's life. And I still have 
a number of patients who get fantastic improvement from the right drug or the right intervention, a nerve block or an epidural, but they are not the dominant number of patients. They are the rarity. They are the exception. They are a smaller percentage. For a lot of the people, it has to be a combination of treatments and interventions, drug or non-drug, that do the difference. And getting that message across is what I realized I needed to bring into my practice. And certainly, the only way I could do that was I was giving this talk to GP practices. I was giving this talks to patient groups from 2016 or 17. I was kind of saying the same thing to my patients in the clinic as well. Um, that's when I realized actually one of my patient support groups, just like you're looking after the myelopathy support group there, I was supporting a patient or rather I'm still supporting a patient support group of fibromyalgia and, and chronic pain. And they were the ones who said, well, you're saying all this, Dr. Deepak, you should be actually putting this in a book there so that that's already there and people are starting to read it. And then they know at what stage they need your help rather than turning up at your clinic and you saying the same thing on a daily basis. So let's touch on, on that book, because the book really is structured around um, these seven steps that you've, you've formed in terms of helping somebody look at the multiple dimensions of managing and overcoming their pain. Perhaps you could introduce us to those steps and, and how, you, how you formed them. Yes, absolutely. Glad to. However, at a preface, what I would want to first say is the reason we need to think about those seven steps is almost going one step further, what I call almost going upstream, you know, one step further up is to actually, first of all, to all your listeners and, and to any of my patients, really, is to say that we need to first distinguish or create a difference between the word pain, as we know it, and this other word that I introduce in the book very early on called nociception. Now, that's, you know, we all have learned brand new words like COVID and uh, social distancing and PPE. So just like that, if we have to learn another new word, I would want your listeners to take away is nociception. Now, nociception is essentially the release of chemicals that occur when we have an injury. Now, that might be a bruise on the knee, that might be a fracture, that might be a very bad episode of irritable bowel that's flaring up or ulcerative colitis, or in your listener's case, a myelopathic uh, change that occurs in the spinal cord, that is going to release chemicals. Now, those chemicals have to travel within the same nervous system that we all have. There isn't a separate pain pathway. Now, all of us read that there are pain pathways when we were in medical school, but we now realize there's no such thing as a pain pathway. There are just the same nervous system and nerves, but the signals travel within these nervous system and these nerves. They go through the spinal cord and they reach the brain. Now, in the brain, the signals are converted by the brain. They are interpreted by the brain. They are compared to whether the brain has received such a signal from that part of the body in the past. It decides what it should do about it. It decides whether it needs to protect or ignore. And the sum total of all of this, if it decides that it has got to look at this nociception, these signals that are coming out and say that this is a sign of danger, so we must protect it, 
that's when it will create the experience of pain. So nociception is one aspect of it when you have chemicals that are being released and then those chemicals have to travel and the brain will then convert those signals into whether it needs to protect and call pain. So pain is a bigger, much bigger piece and nociception is a smaller piece of it. In some people, those who have acute injury or a fracture or the acute myelopathy where the nerve is being pressed upon by the disc or there is an injury to the spinal cord, there you're going to have a lot more nociception in the beginning and that will occupy most of the pain. But when somebody's pain becomes chronic, what we call as persistent pain, then the amount of actual chemicals being released each time is lesser and lesser. So nociception is much less, but the pain experience, what the brain desires as protection, can still remain high or can keep getting turned up higher and higher. So that difference starts to come. And if you have nociception, then your traditional conventional ways of managing it, which is medications or injections or surgery, is likely to be very successful. But once you go beyond a certain time where there is very little nociception, then that's the case where medications and interventions are only marginally successful and we need to think of other things. And what are those other things your listeners might be wondering? That's where I kind of figured that if I have to present the information in an easy to remember manner, I hit upon this acronym of the mindset. You know, in a way, I'm asking your listeners to make that slight difference, you know, a new word and a mindset shift. Then the word mindset itself is the acronym. The M stands for medications. The I stands for intervention, so please don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. The medications and interventions might help, but then once you have pain experience, which is much, much bigger than the nociception, that's when you think about the N, which is the neuroscience, understanding how the brain processes signals. The D, which is the diet and nutrition and the microbiome, the, uh, the healthy, happy bacteria we live with. The S is for sleep and how important it is in terms of pain regulation. E is for exercise and physical movement in itself. And T is for therapies of mind and body because they have a much more bigger influence in regulating us than what we traditionally thought. They are not the touchy-feely therapies that people should give as an afterthought. They should be almost as important as any of the other things that I suggest because they have a way of turning down the sensitivity of the nervous system when we need it most in a friendly, non-drug manner. So that's kind of the pain-free mindset. I think it's a very fascinating and sort of easy to interpret as you get through the book framework. And I really recommend uh, people do look to dive into that if it's of relevance to them. And one of the things, as I got towards the end of the book, that you you highlight is this idea of an 80-20 split in, in therapies. And it seemed that was great symmetry in your in your mindset. You know, it was almost a 20% is that medicine's interventions. And that greater part of the framework is is that sort of higher philosophy and, and, and mindset. It is, Ben. I think it kind of plays into the part that once you realize that 
or rather once I have realized that pain is a evolutionary mechanism to protect us, then the brain's fundamental response is to evoke pain as a response when it senses danger. And therefore, it means that that danger does not have to be a physical danger of injury. It can be an emotional danger. It can be a social danger. So isolation, lockdown, uh, it can be other forms, you know, abuse, trauma of any kind. All of this is going to be a source of danger as far as the brain is concerned. And it has got a few senses. It has got the skin and the external senses, which is what we call exteroception. But it has also got a huge number of information that's coming constantly from the inside, which is called the introception. And it's got to figure out which one it should pay attention to or be more attentive to. And, and it will choose what it thinks is vital for its survival so that made me aware that actually the pain experience is only one part of it. And as, as Wayne Jonas in, in his book, he talks about it is we need to create a healing environment for our patients because only 20% of their pain experience can sometimes be resolved by what we offer in conventional therapy. We need to help as doctors when we are being asked to do so many other things in terms of being sustainable, in terms of being trauma-informed and all of those things, we owe it to our patients to actually create that environment of calming down their nervous system and contributing to easing the danger that they perceive, whether that's the social danger, the physical, the emotional, or the mental health danger, as it were. And I think that's where the 80-20 rule really comes to play with all the other things I mentioned in the mindset aspect. So perhaps if we look a little bit deeper at those first two steps, which I guess are most familiar to people who've who've been experiencing pain and trying to find solutions, that sort of medicines and, and interventions. One of the things that comes across in the, the medication chapter, I feel, is that there's a real need to first of all, find the formula or, or combination that, that works for that individual, but also that recognition that, that lots of these medications have significant side effects. And we put out in unto our community, you know, we mentioned that you were coming on to the podcast and whether there's any sort of questions that they'd like to put forward. And I think there's a, a clear focus that, you know, why is it this medication doesn't work or this one causes these problems? Is there all any alternatives? And I sense it's that frustration around that individual experience versus the advice that is trying to cut through there. In a way, it's right. And, and, I, and I think a lot of us, we want our medications to work fully. But the research that has been done into all the medications up to now is that they have themselves talked about, and I talk about this concept of the NNT and the NNH, which is the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm, that even the studies that were done on these medications only assumed that as long as you could give you know, 30% pain relief or 50% pain relief, depending on which study you read, that's all they required for a drug to be labeled as effective or efficacious. But that's not how the general public and we understand it. When we take a paracetamol or a morphine, we sort of think it should take away all our pain. However, when the studies themselves have been done with only a 30 to 50% marker of success, 
then it's not surprising that in real life as well, patients were getting only that much improvement. But the reality is that if, if for example, a myelopathy patient, they may have other symptoms, other conditions, and they may be on other drugs, and those drugs then complicate whatever pain medication they are taking, causing more side effects. So that's the complication I, I found that drugs were causing, and, and it probably fits in with what your listeners have suggested about, you know, why is there not a suitable medication? I guess then the next step, knowing that, is how do you advise your patients to sort of look at trying different medication or that degree of experimentation? How, how would you counsel them about, about undertaking that? Let's take, for example, uh, you know, a listener to your podcast there and assuming there is myelopathy uh, that is driving a lot of their pain. Now, now, you know, depending on the age group of your patient, they may have other age-related changes going on in other joints in the body. Uh, they may have muscle uh, deconditioning because of the myelopathy that has happened. So there will be other contributors there. And depending on the level of myelopathy, whether it is cervical or, or lower down, you may have other parts of the body, your intestine or your lower limbs having some changes. So if we assume that, that means we've got already two, three structures that can be a problem. You can have muscular problems. You can have the nervous system being directly affected by the actual injury on the spinal cord, or you can have a secondary problem, which I go into the book about the nervous system almost gaining a life on its own. It has a memory and it can amplify the sensations and signals as it needs to. So you've got these three different constructs there. And drugs like paracetamol and ibuprofen, while they are cheap and cheerful, are not very specific. So most of these patients, I would tell them that, look, your main problem is going to be around the nervous system. So I would be suggesting that we look at the nervous system drugs that are there, those drugs that dampen the signals. The opioids are more for a general reduction of pain. They aren't specific for nerve pain again. So they may work, but then my suggestion for giving opioids is, can you use the opioids to reach function? If you want to do something, and the opioid gives you the ability to reduce your pain by X percentage to achieve that function for the day, then you think about an opioid. But if you want to calm the nervous system down because that myelopathy site is firing off or the nervous system above is sensitized, then dampening it on a regular basis is your option. And you could choose. You could choose a drug like amitriptyline, or you could go for something stronger like gabapentin, pregabalin, many of the drugs. And I kind of tell them that at the end of the day, because they act on the nervous system, they are all going to be non-selective. As I told you, there isn't a pain nerve. There is just a general group of nerves where the signals travel. So these drugs dampen all those signals. So side effects are to be expected. The question is, can we start low, go slow, do one drug at a time and aim to say, let's look at 20 to 30% improvement. What are you going to do meanwhile? What else can you add to your recipe of overcoming your pain 
from the N, the D, the S, the E, the T, and use this drug for the 30% improvement. If they are going to put all their eggs in the medication basket, then that's a little bit of expectation management that I do from the outset. I, I am quite honest and, and frank with them to say that I can't guarantee that any of these drugs is going to work 100%. So if we assume that it's a 30% point of start, let's now take the conversation to the next step. What else could you add in to dampen the nervous system? And just while we're on the medication subject, because I noticed that there's been a couple of updates, nice guidelines on lower back pain with sciatica, and, and also very recently with management of chronic pain. And many of those, what we would consider neuropathic agents, such as gabapentin, which are very commonly prescribed, have been sort of withdrawn as being advised by those guidelines. Why, why do you think that is? Is that something that's going to change our practice going forward? Not really, not really. I think I would want to reassure your listeners that that's not going to be the case. So the, the guideline has been a little confusing in the sense that it's actually two guidelines wrapped into one. There's one guideline that's for the assessment of all chronic pain, which is you know, a fantastic step in terms of what is really required because once the guideline like this comes in how to assess pain in a patient-centered, compassionate, holistic manner, then I think the commissioners are now going to have to find the money to make it more holistic and do that bit. So I think the patient will stand to benefit from that kind of an assessment. So that's really good. The second part of the guideline, which is actually another, should have been another guideline itself, in my opinion, is that they bring this new entity called chronic primary pain. And the second guideline is really the management of chronic primary pain. Now, that is actually a brand new label and classification that has come in this international uh, WHO-approved system called ICD-10. And, and you might, your listeners might be surprised, and, and maybe you know it already, so probably old news to you, but hopefully a lot of your listeners will realize that actually up till now, chronic pain, something that affects 43% of the UK population, 28 million people in the UK, isn't considered a disease at all as far as the WHO is concerned. And until this ICD-11 came along, where chronic pain has been included in its own independent right as a disease, that wasn't possible, which meant that we were not able to really keep global statistics or have a global way of talking about chronic pain in a more easy manner. And that's what the second guideline from NICE does, is it finally brings in the ICD-11 in time for it next year, so now chronic primary pain is just that new condition that has come, which only refers to a group of five or six uh, particular kinds of pain. So for example, fibromyalgia, for example, chronic widespread pain, some forms of non-specific low back pain, uh, some forms of abdominal pain or headache, uh, and they have included complex regional pain. So this is a very specific set of five or six conditions which they are calling chronic primary pain where there is no structural changes in the body as far as we are concerned. Now myelopathy as a lot of your patients might be having 
is going to be very much a problem that has happened because of an injury to the spinal cord at some level, this would be considered as a chronic secondary pain due to some form of injury. So this will not, and your patients uh, suffering from myelopathy would not be falling under the remit of this guideline and will be supported by your GP and your colleagues in secondary care to prescribe still what is required for their help in terms of medications. Thank you for that clarification. It was certainly confusing for me to digest that even as a professional. So I suspect that is going to need some interpretation before that becomes a, a mainstay of, of, of practice going going forward. It is likely that this confusion will mean that there will be some practices, there will be some commissioners, there will be some pharmacists who would appear to be enthusiastic in looking at these controlled drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin and wanting to prevent mixing or overdosing or giving high doses. And I think we will have to take that on a case-by-case basis to actually highlight that myelopathy is a chronic secondary pain and does not fall under the remit of the new guidelines. So just dwelling on the sort of medical, I say medical aspect of the, the treatments, the intervention side, one of the things in the chapter around interventions that really resonated with me as a, a surgeon was this appetite, I think, from the general public to undergo surgery for the management of pain, despite perhaps the risks and often mixed to low chances of, of success. Why do you think that is? To me, it stems from what we call as the Cartesian model that we've all grown up and almost been indoctrinated in in medical school, uh, Ben. I, I think I, I grew up and I thought that it is it. You know, if there is a pain and it's coming from a structure, therefore, if you do something to the structure, you should be resolving pain. And that is, in essence, a Cartesian model wherein he was able to, this is René Descartes, the French philosopher in 17th century, he was able to separate the the mind and the body, and he put forward this philosophy that the mind is one with God, the body could therefore be reduced to its component parts and put back together again. And that was fantastic because that started the spur of medical discovery, all the research, all the surgeries, all the fantastic advances we've all done has been due to that way of thinking. I think we are coming up a cropper now because in the 21st century, we realize that most of the conditions we are having these days, 70% is is non-communicable diseases. And the various other interventions that we want to do, the reality is that while they seem to be excellent ideas, they are not resolving the pain. You know, this is particularly true with orthopedics, but it is a problem that it doesn't resolve the primary problem which the patient comes to us is pain. And if we are thinking that it only is from the structure, then surgery makes sense. But as I've explained and we've gone through so much, that is only one part of the problem. So I think we need to have that process of talking with ourselves and then talking with the patient in a more holistic manner to actually say, these are the benefits of surgery. These are the risks of surgery as we understand it. These are the alternatives to surgery because surgery isn't the fix it that we thought it would be. 
And we probably start to need having that one new conversation, which will seem very alien to a lot in the medical profession, not to mention the public, is, you know, what if we do nothing? And that's something that people are going to be not in the right place to take on because we don't want to suffer or feel pain. That feels almost like in this culture of, you know, swipe right and swipe left and everything comes to you courtesy of Amazon Prime in, in within 24 hours, the thought of actually having to live with pain is feels horrible. And I think we sometimes as a species would like to do the most difficult things to ourselves in order to be rid of it. And I think I don't have an easy answer for that. I, I, I chose in my book, I chose this concept from the website Choosing Wisely and I called it Bran and I said that we should think about it in terms of interventions. The reality is very difficult when, when somebody is struggling with pain and none of the conventional ways seem to work and options like diet and breathing and relaxation seem to take such a long time. We think a surgery and handing over our control to somebody else is a better quick fix. Not a great choice, but when you're in pain, your normal ways of functioning are taken away, your ability to reason is reduced, and sometimes you make not the great choices at that time. So turning your attention then to some of those other concepts that you mentioned, so stress, sleep, diet, exercise, and um, and it's also the mind, which are covered in the rest of those steps of, of the mindset. What would you sort of summarize as some of the key concepts that people should be thinking about? My biggest thing, I think, which is an easy or a tangible thing, because we all talk about sleep. I think you go into any GP practice, uh, we all can say, oh, yes, sleep uh, and exercise and do more. I think uh, I, I put it there as a quote, which I liked from James Clear book of Atomic Habits. Uh, you don't uh, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall down to the level of your systems. And so I I really push for saying that how do you make a new habit of anything you take up? How do you use this ability of the brain and the nervous system to learn something new, what we call neuroplasticity? How can you harness that ability of the nervous system? to learn something and how can you make it almost like a new habit, then these concepts of sleep and exercise or therapies of mind and body become a little easier. That still is a little bit of a challenge to some patients and that's where a pain management program can be a good skill building and habit building approach there. The easier fix for some people to do is looking at nutrition and diet. That's not as easy as it sounds, but at least there is this concept of an anti-inflammatory diet, which can be definitely utilized to make your diet more healthier. Things like reducing the amount of processed food, reducing the amount of sugar, increasing the amount of hydration. These are all relatively quick and easy wins to do which can be made more regular. So I think understanding about the diet and the microbiome and what you can do as simple, easy steps with your family and with your uh, immediate loved ones is an easier step to take in, I think. And then after that, other options around sleep and exercise can be incorporated. And, and in a way, the pandemic has been very useful in making us realize that there are so many 
electronic or smartphone based apps we can use to keep us maybe a bit of a habit change routine to be brought in so i think that's how i would look at these other steps it's not as easy as or oh, just do 30 minutes of exercise and it'll be done it's a question is how do you sustain it how do you bring it into a system and make it part of your daily life rather than just doing it for 6 weeks and stopping and i think one of the other things that comes across in your book is that importance of learning what's right for you as an individual you know there's there's no absolute roadmap or plan it's these things about trying and and finding something that suits suits your individual circumstances absolutely absolutely because all of these are dependent on how your brain and how you have grown up thinking about what is dangerous and what is protective and so your brain is going to take a very individual response to what it considers dramatic and dangerous and how it must protect you that all is a sum total of your previous life experiences before the myelopathy incident happened so it means that your response to a particular mind body treatment or a sleep strategy or a movement strategy is very different from the next person and the reality is that a lot of these treatments are not going to have the level of evidence that the nhs will say yes we'll pay for it which means that you will have to financially be responsible for them so i make a plea in the book to say understand what is the best evidence for pain understand what is the not so best evidence but still a relatively harmless or less harmful treatment to explore and then see how close it is to your home and don't take these treatments on as something you can just do two sessions of exercise or six sessions of acupuncture or four sessions of yoga is actually to do a bit of trial and error see how you feel about it and if you've got that necessary improvement that you like it's something that you enjoy the massage from somebody you trust is proven to be beneficial and takes down your pain then the question is can you make it sustainable can you make it part of your system can you get it as a routine once every month or once every 6 weeks and you make that as part of your backpack your toolkit or whatever you want to call it as part of one of your strategies for managing the myelopathy pain a massage every 4 weeks a little bit of medicine to reduce it by 30% a little bit of breathing exercise from youtube a little bit of yoga with someone else from youtube and that way you have a routine to manage and overcome your pain that includes a few strategies rather than everything in one bucket or four sessions of acupuncture at a ridiculous price and then you can't get anything for the next 6 months that is not a good enough strategy because each time you have these ups and downs your brain's going to think that's dangerous that's not so dangerous and it's going to make overprotective unnecessary decisions which can make you have more flare ups than you really need to be having and that's one of the other things that you mentioned should be in everyone's toolkit that flare up plan perhaps you could describe what that is and why that is so important absolutely i i think in terms of the the concept of the flare up we realize that ultimately there are many nerve circuits in the brain and the way i kind of talk about it is you have got uh Uh, i think for a lot of your listeners who might be in the south of england i tell this to my patients in the clinic that imagine that 
you want to get to Waterloo. And there would be many trains you can take to get to Waterloo, and a lot of them would go through Clapham Junction. Then there may be Richmond is another junction that is at the south side, and then there may be a couple of... So there are a number of trains that would come from Reading that would get to Waterloo. You'd have trains that come from Brighton or other parts of the southwest, all going into Waterloo. But if you have a problem that happens in Clapham Junction or Richmond, it's going to affect multiple circuits and lines. And in the brain, it's somewhat like that. Your amygdala, which is one of the regions in the brain, is like your Waterloo. It is the main center where all information regarding uh, pain, regarding fear, regarding anger, regarding other emotions, all interface in the same area. But if you have a problem in one of those lines, means you can have a problem with the problem around the Clapham Junction, which might be for your anxiety, which might be around your Richmond Junction, which might be for depression, or it could be around Ascot, which could be for your pain. But ultimately, as far as your Waterloo slash amygdala is concerned, a signal arrives late and it cannot differentiate between which one is gone. So it's going to amplify everything there, which means that if you're angry, your pain is going to feel worse. If you're sad, you're going to feel worse. If your pain is worse, your mood is going to go down. So they're all very closely interconnected to each other. And stress and sleep or lack of sleep, a poor diet or an inflammatory diet will all activate the same circuits in the same way. So that means that you can have a flare-up of your pain when any of those other lines also get affected or changed. So that means a flare-up plan is always important because it means that you tackle it not just with drugs, but you also tackle the other things that can be responsible for flare. And so I, in the book, I talk about the reason for having almost a blueprint and to say that if you want to have a flare-up, you should have something in your toolkit that addresses each of the components that might be causing a flare. And so a strategy could be that you have a relaxation strategy. So you have three, four techniques on how you're going to relax the muscles. You can have a distraction strategy, meaning what would you do to distract some circuits from there? You could look at what activities might have caused that flare. And you could say whether you need to either increase that activity or decrease that activity. And ultimately, we know that some of those lines will be for mood as well. So what can you do at that time to manage the mood, whether that means you might want to meditate, if that's possible for you to do. You might do something else that's slightly more mindful if your listeners are not able to sit and meditate. It could be something like, you know, doing some breathing techniques, doing some counting techniques. Some of you might want to do some journaling or just do some writing. Each of these is a form of using a mood management. And so I kind of talk in the book about creating a blueprint, a flare-up plan that you then can just quickly go back to. And, and the way I talk about it is, if you want to learn how to drive a car, you're also taught on how to apply the emergency brake. Now, you're never going to need to do the emergency brake unless it's a true emergency, but you're taught to practice it. You're taught to do it so that it becomes easier for you to 
bring that particular technique quickly when you need it. And a flare-up occurs quite suddenly. Sometimes it can come on quite quickly. Sometimes people know when it's going to happen. But if you have practiced some of these flare-up techniques before, kept it in your backpack, it means you can then bring them quickly to the fore and put it into practice rather than waiting once it has happened because then it becomes very difficult to think through when you're in a flare-up of pain. So planning ahead of reaction then, one of the key messages to to that flare-up plan. Absolutely. And I think that is really vital. As I said, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You fall down to the level of your system. If you don't have a system in place to manage your flare-up, then once the flare-up has happened, it's like your brain has already gone into the uh, your your frontal lobe, you know, that part of the brain which helps you to reason, to be rational, is already taken out of the equation once your flare or your pain has become high. Everything is running off the emotional circuits at that time. It means it's difficult to intervene with rational thought. However, if you have an automatic habit that you have created, that's easier to bring in even at that time So that's why creating a system and planning ahead is so much more useful. You finished your book with a look towards the future or potential future of pain management. What do you think are some of the most exciting opportunities on the horizon? One of the most exciting parts, I think, is actually in understanding this thing about neuroplasticity. And that means that we've now discovered that the brain, you know, again, we were taught in school that once the brain has crossed beyond a certain point, it's not possible to change and you know you can't teach an old dog new tricks and all that stuff. And we realize that there is this inherent plasticity of the nervous system to change, to improve, to can be rewired almost differently. That is fantastic because you can use the less technology-intensive techniques like this therapies of mind and body to do the rewiring. There's more and more research to say that yoga or simple forms of mindfulness and meditation can actually do a fantastic job of rewiring and making the brain more supple and agile. We are now realizing that there are even nutritional techniques that can do the same. So these are all relatively less tech-heavy interventions. But we're also now understanding that we can use really technology-heavy suggestions. So, for example, virtual reality is coming of age. I'm now exploring and working with some researchers to see how we can use virtual reality goggles or augmented reality or extended reality to work on neuroplasticity. Can we rewire the brain using these kind of technology-intensive things? There are already options which your listeners may be aware of, things like deep brain stimulation or spinal cord stimulation, wherein we can use really tech-heavy wires or uh, technology to rewire the brain using electrical signals from the outside. Elon Musk wants to do even more fancier things by putting wires all over the brain through some really simple nifty solutions there of just doing a little bit of skull cap surgery. So we've got all those horizon bending strategies that will come in harnessing neuroplasticity. We're also realizing now that 
the brain itself has got other ways of circuits and functions and networks that it has and maybe changing those networks can be possible using a different group of drugs so they're thinking that cannabinoids may be useful in changing some of the way the brain works there there's now the suggestion that immune modulating drugs because they now realize that in some forms of brain uh, pain you know central pain there can be actually a low grade inflammation that's happening within the brain and within some of these networks where certain cells which are called the microglial cells these are representatives of the immune system almost like the policemen and they apparently stand guard at every junction between one nerve to another nerve they actually are standing at the junction and they act as eavesdroppers at the same time they nourish the junction but when there is inflammation these policemen apparently get rogue and they turn from a dr jekyll to a mr hyde they can actually damage that junction and so the next new set of drugs or therapies in the future will be aimed at calming down these policemen and bringing them back to a a dr jekyll state so you might have new drugs that actually do that we are already looking at immune therapies that might be able to calm down this immune policemen so that's a new potential target we are looking for pain management in the future and ultimately we are realizing that we thought the genes decided everything we now are again a little bit more humble in realizing that the genes don't decide much the genes are there in everyone but there are probably the factors that uh, the genes only load the gun what pulls the trigger is actually the environment and the environment in all its forms the internal environment as well as the external environment of a person can and is always capable of being modified and that means that certain genes can be switched on or off depending on the environmental trigger so that means we can potentially make a difference to somebody's social or uh, emotional state or physical state by altering the environment you know if you can improve schooling if you can improve public health if you can improve sanitation if you can improve relational health you can give them better peer support uh, make the access easier to them reduce their financial stress all of that will change the environment and that can change the trigger you can change food habits you can reduce food deserts and give them a better quality of food a healthier food a whole food plant based stuff and that might still do the same thing of making their internal system much more adaptive to stress and reduce the danger all of this is going to reduce pain so i i am optimistic that if we can get the society and the community to help in creating the environment right then we can bring that benefit alongside the technological advances that i outlined thank you very much a very comprehensive and bright future uh, ahead we hope so if there's one take home message you'd like to get across to our listeners um, deepak what would it be from my perspective i i'm all about trying to gain this thing of what's called trauma informed care 
that sits at the heart of my sort of overall vision for making pain education more accessible. And I think I would reach out to your listeners and say that if they can buy my book there, then what I would want them to do is to discuss it with 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 their loved and near and dear ones and to probably show it to the commissioners and, and the people in their power, whatever ability and power they have, because ultimately myelopathy patients, it is a traumatic event for a lot of your listeners. It is something that is often very unexpected and is going to completely change every aspect of their life, which means that kind of trauma can happen to anyone at any time. And we are realizing that actually a lot of things, there is a trauma and everybody is exposed to some form of trauma and how each person's nervous and immune system reacts to a traumatic event is very unique to that person. So trauma-informed care is almost going to be my mantra for how healthcare should be done because if we accept that everyone can be subject to a trauma and that is response is individual, then we will have to realize that our care also has to be personalized and individualized rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. So when I was doing this interview, Ewan, and being cognizant of your experience, I could see a lot of parallels to how your approach to managing pain had really evolved. It, it really encompassed all of those sort of seven steps. What a fantastic interview. I was pretty gobsmacked sort of listening to that. And it was pretty surreal because I've implemented these steps and approaches for the last two years. So what he was actually saying, I can, it really, really resonates with me because I think two years ago, I started having severe stomach pains because of the myelopathic muscle spasms. I went to the doctors, had all the blood tests, and they come up negative. So I decided to change my diet. I cut out all my processed food. I started putting anti-inflammatory foods in there as well. Also, as you know, from the New York trip, I do my hour of meditation every day. So yeah, I've got the steps in place to actually do my meditation in the morning. My diet then is based on no no processed foods. It's a high anti-inflammatory diet as well. I even do fasting from Monday to a Thursday. Stop eating at about 4, 4 p.m. in the afternoon and then start eating again at about half past seven. I've got an eight-hour slot then that I can eat. And I've reduced my screen time. So between the hours of nine o'clock, my phone sort of freezes with the apps. So I have an hour of sort of unwinding before I go to bed. I put my meditation on to go to sleep. So I have my eight hours and I must say it actually helps with the pain levels. So where he says the sort of 80-20 split of your medication or having the right medication, then the 80% is the holistic approach. I couldn't agree more. It's a total game changer for me anyway. I think that's really interesting because I I think I've got a window on this when we shared that apartment in, in New York for the ASPI and Rico DCM consensus meeting. But what's clear is that that's something you've sort of worked out for yourself. And you know, there are a lot of people in the support group. It certainly came through from the questions they're asking. They're still looking for that magic medication that's going to really change everything. Do you think this sort of formal framework could really help 
somebody like that sort of transition to this more holistic, multidimensional approach? Like you said in the interview that, you know, a lot of this medication has got side effects. So sometimes the side effects outweigh the gains with the pain meds. So, yeah, I would definitely give it a go. The saying is you are what you eat, you know, a healthy body, a healthy mind. Definitely, you've got to have the right mindset. You've got to be in the right environment as well. It's a really, really interesting way of looking at pain. And yeah, I would recommend it 100% really. And of course, you know, there are elements in there of working out what's right for yourself. And there isn't really a sort of prescribed pattern that will be the solution for everybody. Everyone, I think it's clear, needs to go on their own journey to work out the formula. And we're delighted to close today's show with uh, a song written by Suzanne Tiedrich, a former critical care nurse, who unfortunately has been left unable to work as a result of her myelopathy. Uh, and lives with with chronic pain because she's turned her mind to something else to help her go forward if you like and she's put her energies and enthusiasm into one of her hobbies writing music and this is a song specifically written as a letter to those in pain so they know that they're not alone there is always someone who can hear them and who knows their pain the song is i am with you it's sung by bailey hager from nashville and it's also available on youtube if you search i am with you by suzanne tiedrich so before we hear more from the song, a big thank you to Deepak Ravindran for joining us. A big thanks, as always, to Carl Homer from Cambridge TV, our producer. And finally, the National Institute for Health Research, United Kingdom, an award from whom supports this podcast. But the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NHR, National Health Service or Department of Health. So until next time, goodbye. To the one who sits in the shadows To the one who's watching life go by To the one who can't remember how it feels to fly And you're too scared to try I can't hear you I can't see you I am with you To the one whose pain is unrelenting And those around can't understand To the one who sits in darkness When you used to run and dance And now you feel you can't I can't hear you I can't see you I am with you Thank
I am with you. 